Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When NBA superstar Steph Curry announced that he was funding Howard University's golf program, it raised some eyebrows. His contribution allowed Howard and HBCU to compete at the highest NCAA levels. Curry's support arrived along with a wave of big announcements for HBCU athletic programs. In 2020, NFL Hall of Fame cornerback Deion Sanders became the head coach of Jackson State's football team. The following year, Eddie George of Tennessee Titans fame took the helm for the TSU Tigers. Landing big name former pro athletes generates attention, excitement, and money for HBCUs. But it's not all about football and basketball. Just after the new year, the storied Fisk University is going to make history once again. This time as the first historically black college to have an intercollegiate gymnastics team. WPLN reporter Ambriel Crutchfield has been following the program's development for NPR ahead of the team's first meet in early January. And she joins me now to share some of what she's observed so far. Ambriel. Welcome back to This is Nashville. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So first of all, tell me a little bit about your reporting. How'd you get onto this story? Yeah, so I I actually was like on Instagram and saw the um, viral video that everyone else saw of like the students going into like gym practice and everything. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I was just seeing people comment on it and that got me pretty interested in it. Nice. <laughs> Instagram is serving the public good. Yes. <laughs> so what stuck to, so what stuck out to you so far? Yeah, when I went so okay, I went on like a day I was super slammed and I'm like, oh I hope I can like get it all right. But oh my gosh, the energy like of the gymnast, it was Morgan Price. She's like captivating, like no matter what you're doing, like just watching her really own it. And I saw her like when she was doing just learning her routine. Mm -hmm. So it was so cool to see how quickly she was picking it up, like how she was already having her personality. When we were talking, she was like kind of brief with me and like. I just saw her come alive, really. It was fascinating. Did you get inspired? You want to do somersaults yourself? Exactly. (laughs) Now, later in the show, we're going to be chatting a little bit with Corrine Tarver, Fisk's gymnastics coach. Tell us a little bit about her. Yeah, so she is has coached for over 30 years, um, and she's the first black gymnast to win an NCAA all-around championship, which just means, like, she's killing it in all four gymnastics exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was watching her, she so she came in a little bit later to practice when I was there. But when she came in, like, if I could see she was kind of analyzing um, how Morgan Price was, like, going about doing stuff like a coach would do. But, like, at a certain point, she was just, like, killing it. Like, I love it. Like, you could just, like, she had a big Kool-Aid smile, like, she couldn't contain herself either. <laughs> now, we're talking about we talked about Morgan Price, this uh-huh. all-American athlete. She's a key figure in your story. Tell us a little bit more about her. Right. So she actually grew up in the Lebanon area, but then moved to Texas. Like her, she got involved with gymnastics during like mommy and me classes, and has just kept it going ever since. Um, she says she's really inspired by Simone Bowles and Morgan Price herself. She's a five-star recruit, and she didn't originally plan to go to Fist because at that time. There was no program. Um, she had a signing day at her school and everything and like had the pictures, everything for her to go to Arkansas University. 
and like her sister goes there too. So like, and she was going to go on a scholarship, but she passed on all that because she wanted to make her dream of going to an HBCU and being on a gymnastics team come true. She turned down a Power Five program yeah. to come to Fisk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Now. You know, gymnastics, that's a sport with a long history. So it's interesting that HBCU is only now forming a gymnastics team. Mm -hmm. Is there something more recent that's driving the interest in the sport? You know what? I was wondering the same thing, but honestly, it's like, I didn't realize how much every the, the momentum of the sport in general was kind of picking up. Like the first NCAA championship wasn't until 1982. Mm. Um, and there still like aren't enough teams for gymnastics to be organized for the divisions. But gymnastics is really unique, like in many different ways. One, it's costly and like the safety precautions are very different, especially with insurance. Um, because, you know, it's like if you're doing a flip, you're not like protected like a football player might be. Also, there isn't this like feed in from high school to college, like football has all these different steps that you can easily kind of go through. Um, and then also like, you know, we can look like in the 90s, uh, Dominique Dahl, she was the first black person to win an Olympic gold medal. Um, yeah, so, but that doesn't mean that there haven't been like gymnastics sports clubs before that. Um, like Darren Moore, she's the founder of Brown Girls to Do Gymnastics. She was telling me how Grambling had a, gym, a gymnast club. Uh, the thing about those programs, though, is they normally don't have the highest two levels of gymnasts there. So you mentioned something interesting to me mm -hmm. that there's no divisions. So Fisk is going to compete against the UCLA's, the Texas's, the Ohio State's out there. You know what? That's beyond my depth of sports coverage. <laughs> I, I, I you hold it down the, from there. The resident sports expert <laughs> yes. at WPLN will say yes, and I'm excited to see Fisk take on these power programs. I yes. think they're going to do quite well. Now, you mentioned clubs are one way into the sport. Mm -hmm. What's the significance of having a collegiate team? Scholarships, money. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, like everyone, not to kill anyone's dreams, but everyone's not going to make it to the Olympics. So this is a nice way of being like, OK, we have this goal that I can get a scholarship and do gym gymnastics while I'm in college. Because otherwise, I mean, since there is no pipeline of doing it at a public school in most cases or at your school, then you're having to dish out money for your kid to like do these practices, which is really expensive. So you want to have some kind of payoff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Are there other HBUs looking to start their own gymnastics programs? Right. So I mentioned Darren Moore earlier, who's the founder of Brown Girls Do Gymnastics. Originally, Grambling was really looking um, at doing a program, but Fist just beat them to the point. Point. Um, so they're still helping, looking with Grambling to get a program. They have a change.org petition actually going. And they've really been urging people to write to their local HBCUs, athletic departments, like, hey, it's time. <laughs> All right, Ambriel, I'm really looking forward to hearing your story. And I imagine the audience will, too. In fact, I think they'll even flip out for it. <laughs> As always, thank you so much for your time and thanks for your reporting. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk HBCU sports and meet some Nashville coaches and student athletes. Did you play sports for an HBCU? What did you play? How was your experience? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. For college sports fans, there's nothing like watching your favorite team play. The energy is infectious, and if you're not careful, you can get caught up and become obsessed. 
The players and coaches appreciate the attention and they work hard every time, every game, every match, or every meet, and they give their best effort. What is it like to play for and coach at an HBCU? My next guests know firsthand. Ty Evans is the head coach for women's basketball at Tennessee State University. Corinne Tarver is the head coach at Fisk University of the gymnastics program. And Morgan Price is a freshman gymnast for the Fisk Bulldogs. Thanks to you all for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. This is great. Thank you. All right, so, you know, Coach Evans, tell us how you became the coach at TSU. What was that path like for you? Um, it was interesting. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but I had applied for the job uh, previously and I always kid with, um, with um, I call her Coach Phillips. She's like a, She's like a mentor to me now, but she was the athletic director at the time. And I was a social head coach at um, University of Alabama. So when the job was open, I applied for it and never got a call back, never got an opportunity to, to speak with anybody here. So fast forward to 2020 when the job came open again, um, my first instinct was not even to apply for it. And it's funny because it was during the pandemic and I was sitting outside and couldn't go anywhere. Everybody was at home and I was literally just sitting outside on my laptop, just researching basketball. And and then lo and behold, I found out that it was it was open again. And something just told me, you know what, just send me an email and see what happens. You know, I didn't think nothing of it. So I sent the email in and then didn't even give it a second thought. And then lo and behold, I got an email back telling me where to apply and, and what to do. And, and to make a long story short, I went through the process and, and here I am. So, you know, I just thank God, you know, a lot of times, you know, we think about the pandemic in negative terms. But for me, you know, it was a blessing in disguise because I don't know if, if I wasn't in that particular state at that particular time. I don't even know if I would have went through the process again. So for me, the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of blessings, you know, involved in the pandemic as well. Now, Coach Tarver, as we heard earlier in the show, you're the coach of the first gymnastics team at an HBCU. How important is it to you to build a strong foundation for that program? Well, it's very important, obviously, because we are going to be the blueprint for other HBCUs, hopefully, to be adding the sport. Uh, it's long overdue, something that uh, I don't think most people didn't even realize was the case when they said, I mean, the, the way the school decided to add the program was that one of our Freshman was talking to an uncle who said, asked if she was applying, and she said no, because they don't have gymnastics, and then asked if they are applying to any HBCU, and she said they don't have gymnastics. Mm. And everybody kind of just took a second, was stunned to realize, how is that possible? So it is important for us to represent. It's important for us to have the opportunity, or give the opportunity, I should say, to the young women who come to Fisk to be able to get an HBCU experience as well as be able to continue to do gymnastics. Well, how'd you get tapped for this great position of the <laughs> first coach of the first program for HBCUs? Well, uh, there was a committee that uh, was well, some consultants, I should say, that were helping them to navigate starting the program. And they gave a list of names for potential coaches. And I got a call from one of the board of trustee members asking me if I would be interested. And at first I kind of was like, well, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. um, I'd heard they'd added the sport because it was a uh, big news on social media. But other than that, I kind of was like, how did you get my name and my information? <laughs> I was um, so I, I did have I did talk to the one of the people who, who did uh, put my name forward 
But and so then I got a little more information on the school and what they were looking for. And actually, one of the things that they did was initially it was just going to be a gymnastics coach, but then they wanted an athletic director as well. And I had been an athletic administrator for 10 years and had run athletic programs, even though I had been an AD, I was an associate AD. Mm -hmm. So I had kind of that unique blend, I guess you could say. So it was a perfect storm. And the rest is history. It is history. Okay. So what are some of the foundational principles you want to establish with the program? Honestly, I want these uh, young women to represent themselves, represent their families, represent their schools, um, to go out there every day and leave it on the floor, or as they say, or for us on the mat. I want them to feel confident when they walk into an arena, knowing that even though they may come from a very small school, they can compete with the big dogs, which we are doing this year. We have some incredible—our our competition season is incredible. So I want them to know that they belong mm-hmm. and they deserve to be there. Okay, so Morgan, you are a young student athlete. You are a five-star recruit. I mean, a lot of people took notice when star football player Travis Hunter, who was regarded as the college top football recruit a few years ago, declared for Jackson State and turned away from a Power 5 school. You did the same thing. You were a five-star recruit who was committed to Arkansas, but you changed your commitment to Fisk. Take us back to that decision. Yeah, so growing up in the sport of gymnastics, you know, I knew that I always wanted to go to an HBCU because, you know, back then we weren't, African-Americans weren't allowed to go to the same schools as white people. So I just feel like it's just a, it's such a privilege to be able to go to an HBCU. And that's why I've always wanted to go to one. And since I did the sport gymnastics, there was an HBCU with the gymnastics team. So I kind of had to just settle and commit to a big time SEC school, which was amazing. But when I figured out that, you know, Fist was starting the first HBCU with the gymnastics team, I knew that I wanted to be a part of that team right away. So I got in contact with Coach Tarver and she gave me a spot on the team. And now now I'm just living the best life ever on mm. the first HBCU gymnastics team. How did people react when you made that decision to flip your commitment? Um, you know, to be honest, some people were very supportive. Obviously, my family members and all my friends were very supportive. But some people on the Internet, you know, they weren't as supportive. But there's also people on the Internet that were super supportive. So it was kind of like kind of like 75 and 25% of like support and then 25% kind of negative just because some people said that I just kind of like left Arkansas in the ditch um, as some people would say, but um, I think it's just the best decision that I made. Mm -hmm. And and look, to give you some life advice, the internet is not real. Let the people have their opinions. You do what you need to do. So, you know, Coach Tarver, you're the historical figure in collegiate and gymnastics, you know, So how are you using your experience of being an NCAA champion, the first African-American woman to win the all-around NCAA title? You were on Olympic teams. You were on the U.S. team, U.S. national team, correction. How are you using your experience of, you know, getting, being a public-facing athlete? How are you using that to help guide Morgan and some of your other gymnasts? Well, I I use a lot of uh, analogies and stories that I experience um, going through what I went through. I mean, I was a kid moving from New York, right outside of New York City, down to University of Georgia, which was mm-hmm. in the South. And so, I mean, it was a 
very eye-opening. I, you know, I'd never experienced anything like that. So just navigating that whole power play of being in the South, being in a school that was a PWI and um, that had not really ever had athletes such as, you know, myself that coming there. So I had to learn to navigate it. Mm -hmm. So I feel like when I talk to the team and tell them stories about, okay, this is this is what you got to think about. And this is how you, you, you need to go about it. And you need to find that mindset to help you because obviously everyone's different in how they think, but ways and, and tricks and to be able to find that correct mindset mm -hmm. to be able to be successful. Because a lot of the girls on our team didn't necessarily think that they were good enough to do college gymnastics. And so we have so many talented athletes that other people told for so long that they weren't good enough, whether it's because they didn't have the right body type, um, they, their feet didn't point as well as, you know, their counterparts, things like that. So their self-esteem as far as their abilities wasn't as high as it should be. So that is something we've been working with with the team is to get them to realize that they're good. They're actually not good. They're great. Mm -hmm. And they deserve to be there. Now, you know, we're, we're going to code switch a little bit with uh, explanatory comma here. PWI stands for primarily white institutions. Now, Coach Evans, I understand this is your first head coaching position. So tell me about the kind of culture you want to create there for your players at TSU. Um, this is my first head college coaching position. I actually was a um, professional basketball coach when I was 30 uh, over in Europe. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've been a, yeah, I've been a head coach before, but but just to answer your question here, matter of fact, uh, can you just repeat that for me? I want to make sure I answer it the right way. What kind of culture do you want to establish for your players at TCU? Well, the biggest thing for us is we we have five core values that I, I feel very strongly about. And it took me a while to, to come up with these core values. And I actually came up with them prior to uh, becoming a head coach here in college. And, and the first one is it, fun. You know, I think it's simple, but yet I think it's extremely profound. I think there's a lot going on in the world. If you turn on the TV or if you're, you know, if you're on your phones, you know, for the most part, the majority of what you see is negative. So for me, you know, the way I was raised, you know, it's all about having fun. You know, if you're not having fun and what you're doing, you know, then I don't think you're going to you're going to give your best effort. So for us, we like to create a culture of having fun. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a person with, you know, with, with, with sense of humor. I love to have fun. I love basketball. But basketball to me is fun because if you think about it, when you were young, when you were growing up playing sports, there's no way you would have played sports when you were young if you wasn't having fun. Mm -hmm. So you grew up playing the game, having fun. So why when you get to this point? You know, you start to succumb to the pressure. You start to listen to individuals tell you it's a business. Not for me. It's fun. So that's the first thing. We like to have a lot of fun. And then the second thing is you got to be passionate. You know, no matter what you do, if you're not passionate about it, you know, you're not going to give your best effort. So for me, if you're having fun, that means you love doing what you're doing. You're going to be passionate about it. Right. And then the third thing is competition. You know, at the end of the day, there's a reason why there's a scoreboard. You know, there is a winner and there is a loser. So for me, if you're passionate about something, then you're actually going to put forth that effort to try to win. So for me, that's very important. And then the fourth one, which is extremely important, is accountability. We talk about that every single day. True accountability. And I think a lot of times most people, they talk about it, but they don't live it. 
you know, and I tell our, our young ladies all the time, true accountability to me is to be in a situation where you know that it may not be your fault, you may not be responsible, but you still have to accept some responsibility for it because what it does, it becomes a, a it becomes an effect. It it becomes something that has a lasting effect on the people that surround you. When they see you take responsibility for something that maybe you didn't do, it's going to cause them to be even more responsible. And what that does, it eliminates a lot of the finger pointing, blaming other people. And then the last one is service. You know, that's what it's about. You know, leaders, I'm real, I'm big on that servant leadership. What can you do to make something better for somebody else? What can you do? So we talk about that every single day. You know, when you walk into the gym, if you see a cup that's on the floor, just pick it up and throw it away. It's not, it's going to cost you two seconds. But if you did that every single time you saw a cup that was on the floor, imagine how clean your gym would be. Imagine how you feel when you walk into a place that's clean. It's just like when you clean your house. No one here can tell me that when you walk into a clean house, you don't feel different than when you come home and you walk into a house that's not clean. So those are the five core values that we're going to build our program on. And those are things that we talk about every single day. Now, Coach Tarver talked about her experience at predominantly white institutions. You coached at Auburn, Alabama, Georgetown, respectively. What are some of the major differences between those programs and TSU? Oh, there's a lot more white people over there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw that out there, though. No, because people ask me that all the time. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing, and, and let's just, you know, it's the elephant in the room, you know, being at Auburn, being at Alabama, you know, the resources that are allocated, the resources that are allocated to those institutions. I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is. I mean, you literally, you have too much. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. It's to the point to where it's, it's sickening. You have too much to the point to where when your student athletes, student athletes get there, there's not really motivation to really get up and do anything because everything is kind of handed to you, you know. Whereas here, you know, we don't have every single thing, but to come here, to me, the challenge is to figure out ways to get individuals to allocate those resources so that we can have the bare minimum so we can level the playing field. So the biggest difference really is just the resources. You know, and then and 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 the only way that you're going to change that, like I said before, is to continue to give back to the schools, you know, the alumni, the boosters and and so forth, just to give back to where you came from. And that's the only way you're going to level that playing field. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about HBCU athletics with Fisk Gymnastics coach Corin Tarver, TSU basketball coach Ty Evans, and Fisk gymnast Morgan Price. You know, I, when I think about the pressure of being a student athlete, it's got to be tremendous. Morgan, I, I'm sure a majority of your time is spent on your studies or training. So how are you able to have something of a college kid experience? Yeah, um, I feel like the coaching staff and like the athletes do a really good job of communicating. So we have like specific times that we have practice, specific times for class and also specific times for study hall just to get some extra studying in. So we do a really good job of like making sure we have time to ourselves to rest our bodies and things like that, but also um, have specific times to make sure that we get our um, scholarships scholar stuff done first because we are student athletes so the academics definitely come first yeah you and your teammates you're already like rock stars you're garnering a lot of attention and when people get excited about a player or team their expectations can go through the roof so to speak 
you know, how are you and your teammates keeping level heads as you prepare to enter the competition season? Yeah, um, I would say, for instance, um, when our TikTok blew up about the first practice of the fish gymnastics team, we got a lot of support and just like a lot of encouragement in the comments. So I feel like that really helps us get ready for season because I know some of us like myself, like we've never done college gymnastics before. So since it is the first year, it is different from like past gymnastics levels. So the fact that we're just getting so much support and so much encouragement, it just really helps us getting ready for a season in January. What are your favorite parts of being at Fisk as a student athlete? Um, my favorite part would probably be just being able to do the sport that I love with girls who look just like me because growing up, like when I was younger, me and my sisters were mostly one of the only African-American African-American girls that were on the team. So the fact that it's a team of like 16 girls who look like you and shame and share the same characteristics or a little bit of the same backgrounds as you, um, I just feel like we can communicate on a different type of level and our bond is just really good. Speaking on that, Coach Tarver, you know, gymnastics is a sport that combines individual skills as well as a team dynamic. How do you balance that for your athletes? Well, we have to let the athletes know all the time that it's about the team. It, everything is about the team. You know, the individual is no longer important as far as what it is you're doing, because everything you do is to make things better for, for the whole. And we have to get that mindset in there. Um, that is something that is difficult for young athletes coming in as freshmen. And unfortunately, being the first team, we don't have a lot of upperclassmen to help them navigate that. So I would say that's probably one of the biggest challenges is people um, understanding that, uh, you know, it's not important that you individually want to do certain things if it's not what is best for the team as a whole. Mm -hmm. And that you, you're going to have to change your, your thought process to understand that, you know, is this good or is this bad for what we are trying to accomplish as a team? Are you helping or are you making it more difficult? So that is something they have to learn. It, it's been a, I, I say it's a challenge right now, probably one of the bigger challenges, just simple things like numbers. Uh, gymnastics is a sport of numbers and repetitions. Mm -hmm. But when you're in club, you have, you might have two weeks to three weeks, if not more between competitions. In gymnastics, in college gymnastics, we compete every weekend, sometimes twice in a weekend. So their body breaks down a lot faster. Mm -hmm. So I literally have to stop my carols. I have to say enough, no more. And they look at me like I'm crazy, like, whoa, I didn't do enough. I always do, you know, in club, I did 15. I'm like, okay, but you do 15 every day. You're not going to make it to February. Mm -hmm. Your body will be broken and you'll be in the training room and you won't be competing. And then you're not helping the team because we can't use you know, that wonderful score that you normally would have helped the team with now is gone because you're injured because you did too much. So you have to learn quality over quantity. Now, you mentioned that the competitive slate for you all is formidable this year. <laughs> Very. What are your expectations for your team? Uh, to step out on the floor every single time confident and to feel like they did everything they could uh, to represent themselves, their family, their school, and their gymnastics and show what they're capable of. We can't control the scores. We can't control what other teams are doing. Uh, we're going against some of the top teams in the country. Uh, so I don't look at it as wins and losses because honestly, gymnastics is a sport where you could lose every single meet and win a national championship. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of the few 
few times that you could winning. It's not really that important, mainly because we we work in quarter of a tenth. So it's less than a toe point. The difference in, in winning or losing could be less than a toe point. So it's not really important that you win per se. It's important that we go in and we hit 24 for 24 routines. Mm-hmm. We do that, then we can say that we did everything we could possibly do. And the results are the results. I smell upsets. <laughs> It'd be nice. It, it really would be nice. Um, I will... We'll see. Okay. <laughs> yes. You know, Olympic gold medalist Simone Biles, who's arguably the greatest of all time, she has helped to popularize gymnastics in the modern era for a lot of African-American young girls. Are you seeing excitement of any future gymnasts out there? Like once this program was announced, did you all start getting letters and letters of interest from middle schoolers and elementary school girls, African-American girls in the region who are interested in gymnastics? We do. Um I have an interesting story. We were uh, we go up to Clarksville once a week to practice, and we were in practicing one day, and I had there was a, a mother standing there watching us, and, and her daughter wasn't there at the time, but she was just standing there. And I just, you know, I went over, and I was like, hi, how are you? I'm Coach Tarver, and nice to meet you. And she had tears in her eyes. Hmm. And she goes, um, her daughter had just come up to her and said, Mommy, they look like me. Hmm. And that was so powerful. And I told the girls this and they went over and talked with her and, you know, autographs. And I think she was maybe 10. Yeah. And her mom said that she was thinking about quitting. And that inspired her that she could one day go to college and do college gymnastics with other girls who look like her. That's beautiful. You know, you got to recruit to keep programs alive and competitive. And with the recent institution of NIL, that's name, image and likeness. College athletes can enter into sponsorship deals and make money. Coach Evans, how does that change the landscape of recruiting dynamics for HBCUs like TSU? Oh, man, it's it's a game changer. I mean, it, it really is because now what happens is, you know, when you're recruiting, you have uh, potential student athletes that are basically making decisions based on potential NIL deals. You know, they're not even really interested in, in coming on this for official visits if you don't have an NIL deal, you know, we can't necessarily make the deals for them, but we can point them in the right direction. So one of the first three questions you're going to get is in reference to NIL. So it changes the game. You have to have a plan, you know, and my thing, get me transparent with a lot of the, the student athletes that we, that we recruit, you know, and what we can do is we can educate them on the NIL. We can guide them. You know, we're not going to try to restrict them you know, from making money, I think it's important. I think they should be allowed to make money. I don't have any issues with that. As long as it doesn't conflict with what we're trying to do from an educational standpoint, you know, in a basketball standpoint, that's first and foremost. But by all means, you know, if you can put yourself in position that, to where you can make some money, hey, I'm, in, I'm, 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 I'm with you 100%. But it definitely changes the game. There's no doubt about it. You know, Morgan, you're a high-profile athlete. Are you open to any possible NIL deals? Yes, I definitely am open to NIL deals. <laughs> Wonderful. Get that money. Get your money. We know, so what, what can we expect from the Fisk Bulldogs gymnastics team this year? 
Um, I would say to expect a lot of powerful gymnastics. Um, we have such a good, talented group of girls this season. So I'm just very excited to go out there with all of them and just to be confident and to show everyone what HBCU gymnastics girls can do. Morgan Price is a freshman at the first ever Fisk University gymnastics team. She was joined by her head coach, former NCAA champion gymnast Corinne Tarver. Thanks to you both for being here. Go out there and have a great season. And I could tell you this, y'all going to be dope by the time she's a senior. I know that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Co coach Evans, stick around with us through the break. Okay. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at the history and future of HBCU athletics. Join the conversation. Which HBCU team do you root for? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about athletics at historically black colleges and universities. These are athletic programs that until recently have not received the kind of mainstream attention, media focus, or money that predominantly white colleges and universities have. This has led to a huge gap in resources and opportunities for HBCU athletes. And for those who have a real shot at playing pro, the exposure is not the same. Many believe that the best African-American athletes have been pilfered by Power 5 schools, leaving HBCUs behind. My next guest has studied this dynamic. Dr. Billy J. Hawkins is a professor of health and human performance at the University of Houston and author of the book, The New Plantation, Black Athletes, College Sports, and Predominantly White NCAA Institutions. Professor Hawkins, thank you so much for being here with us today. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you for having me. You know, tell us, tell us, tell me a little bit more about what inspired you to write this book. Well, I think um, most of it originated out of my own personal experience. I played at a, a small private, um, predominantly white institution or historically white institution, as well as worked in athletics at one of the major universities in the Big Ten. And I noticed several, you know, situations, you know, patterns of behaviors that sort of alerted me to, you know, look at, you know, this system of collegiate athletics in relationship to the black student athlete and sort of a lot of the challenges they face, especially on predominantly white campuses. Um, when you talk about graduating, you talk about assimilating or acculturating to that, mm. you know, institution as well as, you know, um, um, being being successful in, in classrooms as well as on the field. So that's sort of the most, you know, those are the things that sort of inspired me to do that. Now, you call college athletics the new plantation. Tell me how you arrived at that terminology. Well, I don't think it was a new term. Uh, you know, there are several other sports sociologists, you know, Dr. Harry Ellis, for example, alluded to the system being um, sort of a plantation type system. And one of the things I wanted to do, I understand that when we think of slavery or we think of the plantation system, we often think of the brutality that existed with slavery. And we should, because it was a very brutal system. 
And it, but it was more more um, you know of a combination of not only economic exploitation, but there was obviously the racial isolation of the slave. There was the social isolation of the slave, and um, other you know cultural isolation or annihilation in some cases. And I saw those same patterns taking place on college campuses, where a lot of you know, for example the institution I worked in athletics, um, they, you know, um, recruited from um, predominantly black areas, you know, Houston, mm -hmm. LA, and, you know, you were coming into a Midwestern city where, you know, you're less than 1% of the population, the state population. So, you know, there were a lot of challenges, you know, when you talk about cultural isolation, racial isolation, and alienation, you know, and you couple all of those experiences with, you know, not having political power or voice to, you know, um, make decisions about things that govern your life, as well as the economic exploitation, you have sort of this, what I consider a plantation type system or plantation type arrangement mm. relationship. Now, you really take the National Collegiate Athletics Association or the NCAA to task for, you know, facilitating this environment of siphoning, siphoning off talent and resources away from HBCUs. In your view, how culpable are they? Uh, extremely. And when we talk about the NCAA, it, it is a membered institution. So we're talking about individual institutions that are operating um, under the auspices of this governing body. So those institutions are extremely culpable. You know, I, I look at, you know, one of the courses I teach deals with intercollegiate athletics and I look at how, take, for example, Oregon that generates around three million dollars a year in revenue. <clears throat> and you look at their basketball team. You know, of those 16 players, um, 13 are African-American men, you know, and, mm. you know, you look at some of the top pro programs like Alabama and Georgia, you know, they're football teams that generate millions and millions of dollars, but they're predominantly black. You look at the starters, the you know, those individuals that are, you know, um, being taxed every week, you know, to undergird this multi-million dollar operation. They're African-American men, you know, and think if those men, those, you know, the same athletes were going to HBCUs, how the dynamics, the economic dynamics would change. Mm. And what type of pressures are HBCU athletic programs facing when trying to keep their athletic programs and departments afloat? <laughs> Well, well, you mentioned, I think, you know, one of the things we're seeing when we look at um, athletic departments, obviously, we, we've seen this mining of black talent that have migrated to predominantly white institutions. We also see a failure of white America in general, you know, when we talk about uh, under this corporatocracy where um, we have white nationalists sort of, you know, not making good on their promises from, you know, the time of construction, reconstruction to the Moral Act in 1890 that promised, you know, support to these institutions, as well as the civil rights movement. So all of these are, you know, sort of the, um, you know, patterns of behavior that have led to not only HBCUs in general, you know, declining financially, but also the athletic department, you know, so you couple the, you know, state funding being cut to HBCUs and then this migration of black talent going to other institutions that would have normally normally would have been at these institutions. So I think this is, you know, sort of the pressure that they're operating under trying to maintain a competitive program and do it with less dollars. You know, again, I gave you a figure of, you know, Oregon making about not 391 million. The, you know, the, the next or the 
the highest ranking HBCU is around 100 and rank 149th in the country, which is per review, and they're at um, around 18.7 million. So you're talking about a huge financial gap. Um, and, you know, they obviously they're trying to operate under. TSU's women's head basketball coach, Ty Evans, is still with us. Coach, is there anything you'd like to add here as someone who's worked in this system? I think what Mr. Hawkins said is is, is right on point. You know, kind of kind of add to that. You know, if you look at the, this is from 2019. The combined endowment for every single HBCU in the United States was approximately like 3.9 billion dollars. And you look at a school like the University of Pittsburgh, they have an endowment of over 4.2 billion, and they don't even rank in the top 15 of the largest endowments in the country. I mean, just look at that discrepancy right there. You know, like I said before, it all comes back down to resources, no matter how you look at it. You know, it's about resources. So are we getting more resources now, slowly but surely? Yes. Are, are HBCUs getting more exposure? Yes. But we're not we're not even close to being on a level playing field. And as long as it's uneven the way that it is, you're still going to see those black athletes migrating to those PWIs as opposed to staying at home here with the HBCUs. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the history of HBCU athletics. Now, Coach Evans, do you feel like you and other programs are getting the support from your athletic director and school administrators to help expand and grow these resources that you're in desperate need of? Oh, no question. I, I feel I'm blessed to be under um, uh, Dr. Allen. He he hired me here at TSU and I, you know, he sold me on his vision and he's working extremely hard every single day to make that vision a reality. You know, obviously he can't do it alone, but but I'm extremely impressed and I'm, I'm loving the fact that I'm I'm walking side by side with him to help make his vision a reality. And every single you know, we talk about those expanded resources and and different ideas that we can generate to help you know, offset some of the some of the issues that we're having just in terms of being able to to gain more resources. So I have no issues with what we're doing here at TSU. We understand it's a it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. You know, there's a lot of hurdles that we have to overcome, but I definitely think we're heading in the right direction. Now, Professor Hawkins, what about the conferences? Like what role do they play in the development of HBCU athletics? Um, I, I think they play, you know, similar to some of the major conferences such as the Big Ten or, you know, the ACC, the SEC, um, the MEAC, SWAG, um, CIA, all of those conferences um, are critical. You know, a, a lot of times when you talk about major deals that are made, you know, a lot of times when you talk about TV contracts, mm -hmm. sponsorship dollars, they're made at the conference level for um, many major programs. And I think they have a significant role in, you know, sort of marketing um, as well as, you know, seeking out those sponsors and media rights that will help you know, undergird or to, you know, close the gap, the financial gap that exists at a lot of these programs. You know, one method to generate revenue are the so-called money games, where top schools pay millions of dollars to have a preseason type of game against a smaller school. For instance, the TSU Tigers are set to play a football game at Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana in the fall of 2023. That deal is for $1 million. How do you feel about money games like this? Uh, personally, I, I have mixed emotions. You know, I think it's great for the athletic de pro programs, athletic departments that are 
you know, getting this windfall of cash to come in, revenue that's coming in. So I, you know, I applauded on that level. But I remember a case um, when I was at the University of Georgia when they played um, a smaller school, uh, HBCU school, and a player was paralyzed because, again, you're talking about um, different size athletes, athletes, different speed of athletes um, that are competing against one another, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are some you know, I think some health issues that, you know, should be taken into consideration. But again, HBCUs are play, put in this position, right, where they have to um, generate revenue of somewhere. And th these guaranteed games are one of those ways of doing it, unfortunately. You know, in your book, you talk about the Morrill Act of 1862. Tell us what mm -hmm. the, the Morrill Act is and its impact. Well, um, initially it was money that was funded for um, land-grant institutions to, to create and support land-grant institutions. The the actual one for HBCUs was the Moral Act of 1890 that was aimed at Confederate states um, because obviously that's where the, the majority of um, segregation existed and Blacks weren't allowed to attend um, predominantly white or historically white institutions. So those states had to come up with you know, pure institution, pure black institutions. And this is where a lot of the HBCUs, land-grant HBCUs, such as Texas, um, you know, in the state of um, Texas, as Prairie View, for example, that focuses on agriculture, mechanics, and technology. Mm -hmm. um, so they were, you know, sort of created to meet the educational needs of Black students that weren't allowed. And the Merrill Act was obviously the, the catalyst for that. How does that have an impact on HBU athletics today? Well, um, if, if, if it, it really does it now, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, because the, the funding hasn't been successful. Uh, you know, Coach Evans is, a, is in a state where, you know, Tennessee State is um, suing the state for, you know, anywhere from 150 to $500 million of not being, you know, paid uh, based on the Merrill Act. You know, so if those schools were, you know, sort of being funded equitably, Right. Such as, you know, you know, and this again, go back to the state of Tennessee, if, you know, TSU was being funded equitably to, you know, the University of Tennessee. Right. Um, I think that money ultimately would trickle into athletic departments where they would have, you know, sufficient budget in order to operate from. Mm. Earlier in the show, we talked about name, image and likeness or NIL, which allows college players to make money through sponsorship deals and access to lucrative deals have heavily impacted recruiting. You know, and it gives schools a shot at the top athletes. You talked about this a little earlier, Coach Evans. But, you know, is there pressure on you to help generate and find and, and good deals for existing players and future recruits? Um. Not outside pressure. Um, no one can put more pressure on, on me than I put on myself. And, and I have four kids and I want to see all of my kids maximize their potential in life. And I treat my young ladies the exact same way. So once this NIL deal came out, I started thinking about creative ways just to be able to give them advice on how to navigate, you know, through this whole process. So 
do I feel pressure? Absolutely. But it's all self-induced because I want to put my young ladies in the best position possible to be able to monetize off their name. I'm, I mean, just like Mr. Mr. Hawkins said, you know, for so many years, our, our black athletes have been exploited. You know, they've been used. I've seen it. I was one of them. You know, I, I know exactly what it feels like. I didn't know it at the time, but I understand it now. So we're in a situation now where they're able to capitalize off their name, image, and likeness. So what kind of leader would I be if I didn't try to do whatever I could to help them maximize this opportunity? You know, people find it as a stopgap or a Band-Aid measure to, that's really unrealistically coming around to provide some sort of help to ameliorate this resource gap. Professor Hawkins, what's the best way to look at NIL and HBCUs realistically? You know, I, I think it is a, a movement toward economic emancipation, you know, for some athletes. You know, currently when we look at numbers, you know, one of the things, studies we're looking at now, only about 1% of the athletes are actually generating revenue off of that name, image, and likeness. Um, and this is at the Power Five conferences where you expect, you know, athletes to, you know, sort of be taking advantage of that because of the exposure they get. So it is a, a mechanism of decolonizing sort of this economic exploitation. And I think, you know, for me, I've always pushed that labor should be part of that. You know, athletes should be compensated for their labor. So, you know, name, image, likeness, and labor, which will reduce the amount of work that they're putting into name, image, and likeness types of deals. You know, because if you think about it, a lot of athletes are taking on a, a, an additional responsibility. They have to go out to, you know, for shoots, you know, photo shoots. They have to go out to signage. You know, we talk about doing autographs, you know, so there's an additional responsibility. You know, if they are influencers, they have to maintain a presence on, you know, so there's a lot of additional work that placed on them in conjunction with the academic work they have to do, as well as the athletic demand that are placed on them. You know, so, yes, so there is this move towards this economic exploitation that Neil is providing, but it hasn't reached, you know, a significant percentage of athletes as of yet. Coach Evans, what would you like to see for the future of HBCU athletics? We got just about a minute left. Just continue support. You know, a lot of times I think what happens um, when when individuals graduate from these HBCUs, um, they come back for homecoming. You know, but they got to start coming back for more than just homecoming, you know, provide the support that these PWIs are getting from their alumni, you know, and their boosters and their fans. And I think we 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 support, but we don't support with our with our with our pocketbooks, you know, and I think that's something that we have to change. You know, I'm not an individual that's 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 out here begging for money, but at the same time, we all talk about resources and the biggest difference between PWIs and HBCUs is the resource gap. That's that's that's. That's, that, that's the biggest thing. There's no way to work around it. I've seen it. I've been at Alabama. I've been at Auburn. I know what the student athletes say when they come on campus. And I know what I'm selling when they come here. You know, I don't have an indoor practice facility to sell. I don't have a, um, um, a, a new age locker room to sell. I don't have this big time uh, housing unit that was just built. I don't have that to sell. I do have tradition. I do have historical significance. 
I do have the fact that I'm going to care about you longer than you have a jump shot, you mm -hmm. know, but that only goes so that, that only goes so far, you know, yeah. for an individual that's between the age of 18 and 22. All they see is what they see. And with social media having such a huge influence on on, on, on their psyche, you know, it's tough for us. But those are the things that for me, it all starts and begins. It start it all begins and ends with resources. We gotta have more resources. We, we gotta have, we yeah. have to end it right there. That is Coach Ty Evans, head coach of women's basketball at TSU. He was joined by Dr. Billy J. Hawkins, professor at the University of Houston. I wanna thank you both for joining us. And we wanna thank everyone who tuned in this hour. On Monday, we're flying high and getting the lowdown for our expanding air. BNA. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music, Laurence and Amir Blade. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. This is Nashville. We'll see you next week, everybody, and be good to each other.